Geico presents, oh, uh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, while you're there, could you also turn off the oven and all of the burners? <laughs> My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. <laughs> The GEICO Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit GEICO.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance. Contour from Cox has all your favorites, all in one place. And with the Contour Remote, you can use your voice to find them on live TV, on demand, and streaming apps like Netflix, Prime Video, and more. See Cox.com for details. From Cabernet to Montmartre, they're here to slay the art history babes. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Natalie. And I'm Jen. And we are the art history babes. Today, we're talking about our girl, Yoko Ono. Oh, Yoko. (laughs) (laughs) We just love her. We love her so much. Most of you probably know her as the the chick who quote unquote broke up the Beatles. Boo. Um, Which is not the case. She's way more fascinating and way more complex and way more amazing than all that. And we're here to... Tell you about her and her life that she did have before she met John Lennon. A very, like, fulfilling and interesting and crazy life Mm -hmm. um, that just got more crazy thanks to your boy Lennon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so before we we dive headfirst into that, anything new? Um, Yeah, I just got back from a trip up north again, but before that I was in Southern California and I had a chance to stop by LACMA for the first time. Um, hey! Yeah, which was really fun. Um, and I saw a Rob- Robert Maplethorpe exhibit, which was really great. Um, I saw Agnes Martin, who is a phenomenal abstract expressionist, minimalist artist. Yeah, and they just, I mean, they have a great collection there. So glad I got to finally see it. Corey was there not that long ago, and she got to see something I didn't. I feel like you and I had two totally different LACMA experiences. Yeah, I'm sure. You saw the stuff I, like, some of the stuff I wanted to see and did get a chance to see, and vice versa. And then neither of us got to see The Rain Room. Oh, The Rain uh, Room. It's sold out for, like, ever and I ever. I know. For, like, all of eternity. Yeah. I want to go so bad. So, guys, The Rain Room is, you walk through this room where it's kind of, like, just a downpour everywhere, and there's motion sensors so wherever a person steps it stops raining in that spot and so it's one person at a time it sounds really really fucking cool and i'm really sad and they when um when prince died they turned it purple <gasps> oh my god i know how wow. cool is that that's so the coolest good. thing lacma killing i've it. ever heard i know right literally <laughs> and the timing like to have that open i know wow that's yeah. pretty badass. Oh, well, keep up the great work, LACMA. We should all hit up LACMA when we're in L.A. for the podcast festival. Oh, uh-huh. Podcast festival. We're going to a podcast festival, and um, we're pretty much just going to learn how to... Um, do this. <laughs> do Yeah, I mean, because we know some things. We're um, learning every day. So, you know, learning you guys, you guys that listen, you're just like the best. And we just, we really, we really <laughs> love you. And 
keep listening. I think it's just going to get better. And yeah, we're going to go, we're going to go learn. Also, just a heads up, we are diving into the world of YouTube videos. Oh. So um, you can currently, you can get all of our podcasts on YouTube, just if you want to listen to them with like some images. But also, I think tomorrow, Nat and I are going to actually record like ourselves, like talking about art on oh, a video yeah. see our faces you you can see our faces we're going to talk <laughs> about modernism so yeah be on the lookout for that as well follow us on youtube so yoko ono here we go we're doing this so yoko ono was uh born in tokyo japan in 1933 um she kind of went back and forth between like japan and the united states because her father i believe was like her businessman yeah. her dad was a banker and so when world war ii broke out um his first sort of order of business was i gotta get my family the hell out of here mm-hmm. um so there was a lot of going back and forth a lot of um trying to resituate the family First in San Francisco, then in New York, and then they ended up coming back. And um, there was a period of time where Yoko doesn't remember where her dad was. They thought he was in a prisoner of war camp in Vietnam. Um, and he was not, apparently. Um, apparently, he was still in the United States, and they just didn't know. So, yeah, and then there was a period of time where... Yoko, so Yoko Ono came from a family that was well off, mm-hmm. like very like well off. Japanese aristocrats. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, not royalty, but pretty much like yeah. very, very well off family. And then they became entirely destitute during the war and had to barter their goods for food and had to basically um, care for themselves. And Yoko Ono has told many of these stories during interviews. There's evidence of um, her family having gone hungry. Things like that were very important and formed her, what she calls her aggressive personality. So I, I heard an interview um, where she talks a lot about how her mom wanted to raise her to be like a very independent woman too, even despite their family starting out with um, starting out wealthy before World War II. But she, her mom, still saw the value in teaching her to be a strong and independent, not to use a cliche, but woman. And um, yeah, I think you can see that in the way that a lot of people try to perceive her as cold. And it's not, in fact, like that. And I think people are starting to accept her more now that she's, like, 80. And it's been a long time since the (laughs) Beatles broke up. She's paid her dues. Speaking of the Beatles breaking up, we'll just kind of dive into that quick. Um, So, as we mentioned, you might be the most familiar with Yoko Ono as uh, the wife of John Lennon. And this has been a very important kind of factor in just the defining of Yoko Ono, the image of her in the public eye. But she's so much more than all of that. She's an incredibly influential and talented artist as well. And a lot of people, unfortunately, just don't know about her work. So Yoko Ono and John Lennon, a little bit of just history on their relationship. They met November 9th, 1966 at um, the Indica Gallery in London 
at one of Yoko Ono's shows. And there's a kind of a few versions of the story um, where when they first met. But it was Yoko Ono had this this show at this somewhat avant-garde gallery. It was happening. It was, yeah. Um, and um, John Lennon was doing like a private viewing. Um, neither one of them really knew who the other was. Like Yoko Ono didn't really know who John Lennon was and John Lennon didn't know who Yoko Ono was. Um, but he, he was doing a private viewing like right before it opened. And a lot of Yoko's work is incredibly conceptual. And John Lennon didn't have the best opinion of conceptual art. He, he found a lot of it to be kind of negative or like nihilistic. But as, as the story goes, um, a, a few different things happened. Apparently he went to this exhibit. He saw there was one piece that was a apple on a pedestal and it was selling for, what was it, 200 quid? Um, no idea how much money that is. I, <laughs> I don't know either. We, tell did, you. we didn't look it up. Yeah, we're just gonna. But come too out much for an apple. It was an um, apple. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, like, apparently John Lennon both was frustrated by this, but also thought it was really funny. Like he he appreciated the um, the kind of humor in in Ono's work. And then there was another piece where there's like a ladder that you climb, um, and he he climbed up the ladder, and once you get to the top he saw the word yes. And this kind of was apparently a big moment for John Lennon because he had this opinion of like conceptual art being so negative and it really, what was his exact words? It was nice to see. He was very relieved that it was positive and that it didn't say um, like no or fuck you to use his words. (laughs) And um, so the fact that it was affirmative message made him want to stay and made him want to see the rest of the show and you know he did some some clever John Lennon stuff like um <laughs> you know there was where was the it was the, the, the nails there was oh. a, something for him to yeah the, there was it was nails that it was supposed to be for like the audience they, they to would, hammer in a nail yeah to hammer in a nail and um I think it was called hammer piece probably, actually. probably. <laughs> um and so and you had to pay a certain amount of money to hammer in a nail and so he didn't want to pay the money so he said well how about I give you imaginary money and no, I, I think, can hammer in an imaginary nail I think what happened was it didn't cost money to hammer in the nail but he wanted to do it before the show opened and she wanted it to stay pristine for the opening yes she wanted it to stay pristine for the audience and then and he wanted to hammer in a nail and she asked him for money to do it oh right then he goes i will give you an imaginary five dollars if i can hammer in an imaginary nail Right. So basically, John Lennon shows up to the Indica Gallery to fluster Yoko Ono, who is like, who is this man? And Yoko claims, and I believe her, that she had no conception of who the Beatles even were. Mm -hmm. That she didn't know how famous they were. She just, you know, met this guy. And context, she's eight years older than him. She has been running in avant-garde circles since the 1950s. And is very well known within them. And here's this rock star who she doesn't really care very much about in her gallery. And and it really just, they, they both kind of caught each other by surprise, it sounds like. And um, yeah, yeah, my, I mean, all of these little anecdotes are so ridiculously like avant-garde. It's silly, but right. um, 
but the the best one, and this one I heard from it's it's in an interview with Yoko herself, and I think I read it as a quote from. Um, I read it in a quote from John Lennon as well, um, was the, like the actual moment when they met in this gallery space. So obviously it was a private encounter. Um, so they were probably interacting a lot, but the moment when they like actually met, apparently the owner of the gallery was trying to get Yoko Ono to go talk to John Lennon because he's this millionaire rock star. And, um, so Yoko Ono goes up to John Lennon and she hands him a card and it just says breathe on it. And apparently he looked at it and then he looked at her and then he just took this big like panting breath. And that was their first interaction, which is like ridiculous, but romantic, but perfect. Mm-hmm. Like all in. It and would be unrealistic for any other couple. Yeah. But, like, but it works But you for believe them. it. Well, for them. Yeah. And then what happened then? So then what happened <laughs> was that, um, so this is what happened. Um, I was one of those kids who was um, like way obsessed with the Beatles when I was in like middle school. So I just like learned everything about them. And now I have all this knowledge for some reason. I, I, I need no, this day would for come. this moment. I need this day would come. Um, <laughs> Well, okay, so both John Lennon and Yoko Ono were married, and they were both in very unhappy marriages, and John Lennon was actually kind of an asshole. Like, he was an abusive husband and didn't treat his wife very well, and Yoko Ono was married to one Tony Cox, who abducted their daughter and moved to New Zealand and just Yoko spent years and years and years trying to reconnect with her daughter and locate her and so that's all happening in the background and they meet each other and then they just you know it's like a two-year thing where they start just getting to know each other and wouldn't you know it John Lennon's really interested in this um, super eccentric different type of woman, not the kind of woman that a Beatle would be meeting very often. Also, 1966, that was around the time the Beatles stopped touring and decided to just start taking copious amounts of LSD. For real. A lot of LSD. And John Lennon in particular was an LSD champion. Yeah, there were people that were like legitimately concerned he was going to fry his brain. He took it every single day for a number a of, lot for, of some, for some years. Yeah. For that's, that's a lot of acid. So it's not too far-fetched to assume that he became super interested in everything that was going on in the avant-garde. He also went to um, an art college when he was still in Liverpool. So... There's a lot of reasons, I think, why they ended up together. And the whole idea that Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles is just so stupid. Because, (laughs) you know, you need to really understand, like, the Beatles were these four guys that started hanging out when they were teenagers. And then they got super famous. And then they spent the majority of, like, five or six years confined to hotel rooms because they were constantly on tour or recording or couldn't go out onto the street because they would get mauled by young women. Um, So I think that the Beatles were sick and tired of each other. For real. And after 10 years of being stuck with these other people who, you know what, even if you're with your best friend and you love your best friend and you're in the same room with them for 10 years, you're not going to want to see them like mm-hmm. <laughs> you're just gonna get so sick of them yeah I mean just that le- like that level of 
just yeah being together all the time is just not sustainable like it was never sustainable the Beatles Um, the Beatles grew up and, and they broke up themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the idea that Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles is just stupid. So stop saying it. Stop. Um, <laughs> just, for real. Just stop it. If um, you keep saying that after this <laughs> podcast, then don't ever talk to me again. Because Don't ever talk to me or my son <laughs> ever again. <laughs> because that is just asinine. And I refuse to hear it again. Um, so it's done. And... That's it. We okay. said it right now. Okay, we said it right now. Okay, and okay. now. <laughs> Anyways, um, okay, last little bit on John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Um, they um, did a very important performance piece together, which they did a series of bed-ins, um, also referred to as bed piece, piece spelled P-E-A-C-E, in 1969. And it was technically, the first one was Technically, their honeymoon. It was right after they got married. Was that the one in Toronto? Um, no, Amsterdam. that was Amsterdam. Oh, yeah. right, right, right. So they did um, two two week long bed ins for peace as a protest against the Vietnam War. There was one. The first one was at the Hilton in Amsterdam, and then there was one that they did in Montreal. You can watch the film. Oh, Montreal. Montreal. You can watch the film of uh, bed peace in Montreal on YouTube. The whole thing's there. Um, I would recommend it. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. The second, in- like, interesting little tidbit, the second one, the the bed piece in Montreal, was actually supposed to be in uh, New York, but John was not allowed in the U.S. at this time because of a weed conviction mm. in 1968. So um, they went to Montreal instead. Oh, that kooky beetle. <laughs> That kooky beetle and his marijuana. (laughs) With his wacky tobacco. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so they did this this sit-in protest in which they they stayed in this in a bed in a hotel room and it was kind of a like a doors open letting letting people come in letting a film crew come in letting um different journalists come in there there are scenes in which it's kind of just like they invited their friends over like timothy leary was there alan ginsburg was there um yeah so like Tim Leary, he was just there dropping off some, <laughs> some stuff. <laughs> um, it was it was a fun group of people. They they made art in bed. They um, they, they were they recorded "Give Peace a Chance." Yes, in bed. Yes, they yeah. recorded music. They had when they had other people over, they would just kind of do you know essentially your stereotypical like hippie hangout vibes, like playing music. Sending sending out good vibes, sending yeah. out love, um, and it was it was all in protest of the war. And uh, well, first of all, that the fact that Yoko is a musician in her own right that people probably don't know. That oh yeah, did we mention that? I don't think we mentioned. I don't think that. we mentioned all of her many titles. Yeah, many, Yoko Ono was a she's a Renaissance woman. Or, well, she yeah. she's a classically trained um, pianist. Her father was a concert pianist. Mm-hmm. And she was trained in classical piano from the age of four and studied at one of the most prestigious schools in Japan alongside um, Prince Akihata or something. I'm so I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the the prince, okay. Not it was, to be confused it was, with Prince. It was the it was the Prince of Japan. I I'm, I'm I don't have the name. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So she was very um, she was very talented. I would also like to point out that. The bed-ins for peace were 
basically not they were they were treated as um, these sort of like big publicity stunts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, but it, it's important to note that these were still conceptual pieces that they did. It yeah. you know it wasn't just a publicity stunt, but they both were aware of how they were being perceived in the public eye. And I think that when you are in the public eye as a celebrity, you should use your celebrity mm-hmm. for whatever. And yeah. what's, what better they than you know, peace? So, and they took control of the media hounding them because it was going to happen either way. So they decided to harness it and use it for a greater good yeah. Rather than just letting it be about their lives, they turned it into a global... They turned it into drawing attention to a global issue and trying to make a change. Yoko, though, I heard her talk in an interview, speaking in an interview recently where she kind of says that looking back, she feels like it was a little bit silly that they thought that people would be that right. interested in them. But I, but they were. But yeah. they were, yeah. Like, they, people, well, you know what? People thought they were going to go into that hotel room and they were going to be, like, having sex. Mm-hmm. Like, there's been report. people thought, like, this is going to be a sex thing. Yeah. And it wasn't a sex thing. If there was anything insidious behind it, not that sex is insidious. I mean, there but, was definitely, I know in the... Piece, there was a sexual element to it, but more in like the love sense. Like mm-hmm. they were trying to spread yeah. like, like the idea that like sex is an expression of love. Yeah, you didn't walk into the room and see them having sex. Like that wasn't the idea, but they were kind of they were kind of pushing this platform that like we should all be hanging out and playing music and making art and having sex, making love, like all positive things. Yeah. It also And this is not to speak negatively on either John or Yoko, but they both had kind of a nasty heroin problem at the time. I didn't know that. They did. They they both were really hooked on heroin and they they went clean in the early seventies and that was like a a really they all they started eating this like macrobiotic mm. diet or something. She claims <laughs> they know. never injected. Too, right, which, right. Yeah. Which they which they didn't. And yeah, I, I they both had a fear of needles yes. which she thinks saved them yeah. ultimately. Yeah. And um so they were they were hooked on heroin and I think that if you're um hooked on heroin, sitting in bed for two weeks is not that hard. So <laughs> you know I'm not I'm sorry. That sounds so mean, but yeah, I just I feel I like mean, we should put that out there that that oh, was yeah. also a factor. Yeah. Anyway modern fertility dang i really wish i could sing because i wanted to follow that tune but i cannot sing i can't sing either but i just i like making little jingles how about it nat i mean you probably thought about your next step in your career relationship but what about planning for a baby or a metaphorical baby or or planning for not a baby all of those totally reasonable (laughs) options Exactly. As a woman, we kind of have to make a decision to either have or not have babies. And Modern Fertility is here to help with that decision making. Modern Fertility is a quick and easy hormone test you can take at home. So if you're thinking about trying for a baby or you want to know maybe what your options are for the future or... Or if you just want to know more information about kind of how all that works and your hormone levels and just, you know, generally be informed about your reproductive health, which is a great thing to be informed of, Modern Fertility is here to help. 
So I was able to take it and got my results back within like eight days pretty quick. It took me to the website where they had all my information, and I'm happy to say that nothing came back alarming. It was really easy to understand, and they use very simple language, but they also have options where you can read into the different hormones more closely. So if you do have something that may be slightly out of whack, you can read more about it and figure out you know, how to raise or lower or what that might mean for your day-to-day life. It's really interesting. Or your fertility, I guess. I was kind of just looking at it for my day-to-day. But um, speaking from experience, like, yeah, I definitely feel a little more empowered just knowing that all of my hormones are working and doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah, that is definitely good news. Also, it is very affordable compared to similar testing. Um, oftentimes, that kind of testing can cost over $1,000. But with Modern Fertility, you can get the exact same information for just $159. That's such a good price. Yeah. Plus, you can also talk one-on-one with a fertility nurse once you get your results. So you can get answers to questions that you might have, specific questions that are related to your results. And that is really valuable. Yeah. So it's just great information to have. Very affordable price. Very easy to do. Comfort of your own home. Don't even have to go to the doctor's office. And right now, Modern Fertility is offering Art History Babes listeners $20 off their test when you go to modernfertility.com slash historybabes. That's $20 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com slash historybabes. Modernfertility.com slash historybabes. Modern fertility. So yeah, that's bed piece, um, or also known as the bed ins. Let's kind of move away from from Mr. Lennon. Yes. Um, into Yoko Ono's work. Let's start with her her I think biggest work or most well known work, which is uh, 1964's cut piece. Ah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Cut piece. If you are not familiar with it, is one of the most important performance performance works to ever have happened. It essentially, once again, you can um, watch excerpts of it on YouTube, but it essentially con- consists of Yoko Ono sitting in a room and allowing the audience to cut away at her clothes with scissors. Totally like unscripted, just her sitting there and letting them, letting the artwork develop as it will. Um, So kind of you have this shift of uh, audience member to to artist. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's it's been done more and more over time. But this was 1964. This was kind of cutting edge. Yeah, this was super cutting edge. This was one of the first times this kind of thing happened. So ta cutting edge. (laughs) Get it? (laughs) So take. So taking the audience members who are generally in art, um, the passive member of the interaction, you know, they're looking at the art and making them active in letting the artist become the passive one sitting there and basically being at the mercy of these um, viewers who are literally cutting away pieces of her clothing and not only that, but it's kind of touching on this, like, violence. I mean, there's kind of an yeah. inherent violence to do with scissors and cutting and stripping someone down and exposing her. So then you get this violence kind of juxtaposed with this vulnerability that she's offering up. 
there's a lot of layers going on. For real. It says interesting things about voyeurism, too, because mm-hmm. um, typically, like, looking at art is such a voyeuristic act, but now you're becoming active in the artwork, but you're still a voyeur in Yeah, because ways. while one person, there's one pair of scissors, so the scissors is, she's up there fully clothed with the scissors next to her, and then the participants start coming up one at a time so while that one person's up there there's still the rest of the audience kind of watching them so it's this really interesting kind of exchange that starts happening yeah cut piece was performed at least on six different occasions by yoko ono it's been performed by other people as well yoko ono was active not necessarily a part of, but was active within a group which became known as Fluxus. Now, Fluxus was a group that was operating throughout the 1960s um, and really got its start through a series of concerts that took place at Yoko Ono's um, Chambers Street Loft in New York City. So Yoko Ono lived in New York City, um, and she met John Cage, who is a experimental composer, artist, and um, also Lamont Young. So these were composers, and these people were not... They, they didn't confine themselves to one medium. So they composed music, but they saw their work as essentially a like multimedia-style... Uh, they they were multimedia artists, if if we want to simplify it. Um, so they believed in like total art, so something that really arrests the senses. Yoko Ono met John Cage actually at a um, a lecture at a university in New York City, and then um, they became they became good friends, and they started this series of concerts at Yoko's apartment, and um, these concerts um, became the seminal events that launched the Fluxus group, which Fluxus referring to something that's constantly in flux, constantly changing. So that's a little bit of, of background. And the thing about Fluxus that's interesting is that it it really, it embraced this idea of chance. So anyway, they hosted these events. They called them happenings because it's the 1960s, baby. And <laughs> Stuff is happening. And um, so it's within this environment that Yoko Ono started making these pieces, as most of her work is referred to. And the great thing about these Fluxus events is that they tended to focus on these sort of like single gesture actions. So in the case of cut piece, the gesture is to come up on stage and cut off a piece of Yoko's clothing and take it with you. And um, so because of this, many are easily expressed as um, written performance instructions. Mm -hmm. So that's how cut piece exists. It's cut piece is an instructional piece. And I don't know which cut piece she decided to kind of change it a little bit, but um, later on in performing it, she did the thing where she asked people to cut a piece no smaller than a, or no bigger than a post-it note, right? Really? Do you remember this? And then she asked them to send it to someone they love. Ooh. Yeah, I don't remember that. was like that. a later kind of addition. That's cool. Or a, a later um, 
change that she made to the performance. I, but it's like it's a really sweet sentiment. That's and it's interesting. Turning it into like kind of a gifting instruction. Yeah, I would love to send a piece of Yoko Ono's clothing to someone I love. Right? Like that'd be the best love letter. Or ever. to receive a piece know, of Yoko's exactly. clothing from someone who loves you. Like, I would come on. freak out. If, right? if, if you're trying to win my heart, send me a piece of Yoko Ono's clothing. <laughs> well, and you know, that's, that's great because it really, um, that touches on something that I read. So Yoko really considered this piece to be like a sacrifice, like a gift that she was giving to the audience. That's how she thinks of this work. Well, it definitely is. Like, allowing... I mean, for any human to allow people to... I don't know. It's 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 kind of... A, it's a penetrating act yeah. in, like, a lot of ways. And to allow, an, like, other human beings to kind of penetrate into your space like that and to to act in that way, I feel like that's a gift to give to someone. Yeah, and when she would go on stage, she would wear, um, like, her best outfit. Like, she would go up there dressed to the nines, and she would sit in a traditional, like, Japanese woman's seated position. Yeah, I think it's, it's like a yoga position of some sort. It's called... Um, Probably didn't originate as a yoga position, but I think it is. There's a... Is it called the... Yoko no. Ono. No, there's there's like a there, there's like a um there's a traditional name to the way that she's sitting, but the point of it is that it's a very like ritualistic act and her um having go, going up there and giving this sort of like gift to the audience which is cutting off her piece of her clothing is it's like what she chooses to give the audience. And something that needs to be mentioned is that the world of the um, Fluxus avant-garde was by no means a equal playing ground for men and women. Um, there were several Fluxus artists and many women. And the women were essentially expected to like play ball in a man's court, you know, mm-hmm. and... Um, it wasn't really a feminist-friendly space. Most of the avant-garde after World War II was in some ways shifted towards a more global perspective, but even then it was still heavily informed by Western patriarchal society. Patriarchy. Ugh. Oh, the patriarchy. You know, and you can't escape it. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just everywhere, and, and it especially um. was around this time, which is the, you know, mid to late 1960s, many what you would consider, like, proto-feminist movements and thoughts were sort of circulating, and many want to brand Yoko Ono, and especially Cut Piece, as a proto-feminist work. And they want to brand Yoko Ono as a feminist, which is fine, um, considering, you know, this work was performed by a woman of color who historically gets the worst part of society. Yeah, I, I was just telling you this. I actually, in this um, documentary I watched called uh, The Real Yoko Ono, 
uh, made in 2001. It's actually, I mean... Oh, Yo- I've seen that. I've yeah, seen that. Yoko Ono's in it, so that makes it pretty good. But it's actually more of a documentary about Yoko and John Lennon, to be honest. It's not really that much about, like, Yoko Ono's work or anything. And they interview uh, Yoko Ono and John Lennon's son, Sean Lennon. And he has a quote where he's talking about how he doesn't think that Yoko Ono would have gotten, like, the backlash that she did had she been a blonde woman. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, like, probably 100% on point, unfortunately. Yeah, you can't Uh, deny the racism in effect when it comes to people hating on Yoko. Yeah, especially if you look at, like, contemporary media coverage on the breaking up of the Beatles and of John's divorce and the very public um, sort of courtship of John and Yoko, most of the media coverage is is painfully racist. It's, mm-hmm. They called her the dragon lady. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, they called her like, like yellow, just like horrible... Ugh. Things to say, and you know, they called her just flat out ugly. Which is, who says that? That's so. It that's, is just not. It's even not remotely even, true. It's not even true. Yeah. Like, she's a she's very a beautiful, beautiful person, beautiful <laughs> woman. If, if I could look like Yoko Ono, like <laughs> I if I live to be eighty three years old and I can look like Yoko Ono, I would just be ecstatic. Go into the- um, in nineteen seventy three or four, mid seventies. John and Yoko split up. She just was, like, tired of him. It, honestly, that's really what happened. She was mm-hmm. exhausted. The The whole media, constant barrage of media coverage and paparazzi and their anti-war movement and concerts, she was just exhausted. And honestly, John Lennon was obsessed with her. He was obsessed with her. He wouldn't even let her go to the bathroom by herself. Like he was very, he had some attachment issues with her. Um, She represented something for him that goes beyond the typical romantic relationship. She's the original manic pixie dream girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, She ended up sending him away. Just said, you know what? Just go take our assistant and get out of here. And so he did. And he had what he referred to as his long weekend. And he was gone for 18 months. That's what he called it? He called it the weekend? long weekend. Or no, no, yeah. the lost weekend. I'm sorry. The lost weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, where he just um, partied. He partied <laughs> for like a year and a half. And um, and, he, and he was with another woman that like Yoko set him up That with. was the assistant. Yeah. 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 One May Pang. Yes. Um, and, you know, so she, you know, the point is that she had no trouble with men. And I, I really hate this idea that she was like this, I don't know, that she was somehow chasing after John Lennon, like the ultimate groupie. And that's just so wrong. Um, on that note, I think we should take a quick break. And we're back, and we switched out uh, Ginny for Natalie. No, Natalie for Ginny. <laughs> Did we? Hey, it's me. It's Nat. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. It's Ginny. 
So Ginny's here to clarify. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> We're the same person. <laughs> Did you ever notice how the two of them were never in a room at the same time? I know. I know. Uh, oh man. <laughs> um, anyways. We're talking about Yoko Ono. Um, we just kind of finished up on Cut Piece, her kind of most seminal work, and now we're going to talk about some of her other work, some of, um, some of the other stuff she was into, so. Yeah, Yoko Ono, um, after, after the Beatles broke up, after a period of, um, you know, relative domestic bliss with John Lennon, (laughs) um, you know, they took a big break out of their career, and, and during that time, Yoko got really involved in um, just kind of managing John's career, and she really put her own career on, on the back burner, and um, around that time, she also ended up getting into the occult. It's it's interesting for us, because um, we're very fascinated by these kinds of sort of esoteric um Hmm. themes and topics and um we like we like witchy shit we do (laughs) we really do and and um you know yoko ono is still a big proponent a proponent of (laughs) of numerology and Ah. um you know tarot readings and um, i'm getting my tarot cards right on set tomorrow oh (laughs) that's so exciting (laughs) lucky i take me with you i get my tarot cards right you know i love that kind of shit it's it's really great and um and so you know that actually is interesting because um it's kind of like one more thing that that puts yoko ono in this strange sort of uh position where she becomes even more polarizing of a figure. For so, sure. you know, some people um, have cited her sort of like occult leanings as more reason to be afraid of yeah, her. I think we're afraid of Yoko Ono. It's it's interesting. And what I love is that sometime around 2007, Yoko Ono uh, released an album called Yes, I'm a Witch. <laughs> And um, the album is a remix album that is inspired by a 1974 song that she featured on one of her own albums called A Story. And the song is called Yes, I'm a Witch. Yoko Ono did very much enjoy um, recording music, and and, uh, she still does, actually. And and so we really enjoy that she kind of has these little witchy leanings, you know, Mm -hmm. because... um, where we often talk about our little group here as a as a coven of sorts, and <laughs> Yoko, you are in our coven, um, <laughs> honorary I, coven yeah, member. I I really I I love it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so some of her other notable works. Um, in 1964, she published Grapefruit, which was kind of a conceptual art piece, and it was also a book. This term, Grapefruit, was actually used in a lot of her work. It first appeared when she wrote um, a story for the newspaper while she was at Sarah Lawrence College entitled Grapefruit in a World of Park. And um, in this story, the grapefruit, it kind of serves as a as a metaphor for 
her own hybridity, her own cultural hybridity. So grapefruit has just been a very important word, symbol to her. Um, in Grapefruit, published in 1964, it consisted of a series of these instruction pieces, which, as we mentioned before, a lot of her work is very instructional. Um, it allows the audience a chance to kind of become the artist as well. Just a couple of them. Let's see, one of them says, let people copy or photograph your paintings, destroy the originals. Um, my favorite one is t entitled Tuna Fish Sandwich Piece. And it says, imagine 1000 suns in the sky at the same time. Let them shine for one hour. Then let them gradually melt into the sky. Make one tuna fish sandwich and eat. Spring of 1964. <laughs> so yeah, that one's I know it's personally it's my favorite just because the like the grand scale of the imagery and how like existential and intense this idea of like like suns melting into the sky and then it just like ends on something so mundane as as making a tuna fish sandwich. Can, can I read one? I have a little a, of course. a little tiny one, a little baby one that I really enjoy. <laughs> um, from the spring of 1960, it's titled Blood Peace. Use your blood to paint. Keep painting until you faint. Keep painting until you die. I like it, you know? That's intense it's, right there. It's a good one. It is. It's I, I, I dig it for sure. Uh, it's just, check out Grapefruit. It's, it's full of this amazing little stuff. It'll just, it'll just make you think. For sure. Um, if nothing else, it'll, I don't know, if you follow Yoko Ono's, and like if, if you're bored one day, just like pull out one of Yoko Ono's instructional pieces. I'm sure it'll lead to interesting activities. Another one of her works, she got into experimental film um, in the 60s. One of these films was entitled Four, uh, also known as Number Four, also known as Bottoms. And it is essentially just a video of um, a series of, of butts walking on a treadmill, like close-ups of, of different people's butts as they walk on this treadmill. Um, and you said you saw that, didn't you? Yeah, Sam? I saw that at the MoMA um, in New York City last year. So they had an entire show dedicated to Yoko Ono. It was uh, Yoko Ono, a one-woman show. And um, so there was a, a corner of the gallery consisted of a, just a big blank wall where a projector was running. And it was just literally, it was it was bottoms. <laughs> and they were walking on a treadmill and... and God damn, it was just fascinating. You just it's kind of meditative. You just stare. <laughs> it, it was, you know, it was very interesting. And I really enjoyed this sort of um, like meditating on like the <laughs> mechanics of the human body. Yeah, for real, for real. So Yoko Ono has worked on these uh, wish trees that started in kind of the late 80s, early 90s, and it's been an ongoing project ever since. They have gone up all around the world. It's essentially um, you write wishes on cards and tie them to trees. Um, the exact instructions written by Yoko Ono are make a wish, write it down on a piece of paper, fold it and tie it around a branch of a wish tree. Ask your friends to do the same. Keep wishing until the branches are covered with wishes. Which is just lovely. That is lovely. And I believe, I think we were talking to Natalie about this, but there's um, supposedly, this is um, taken from like a practice from Japanese, yeah. uh, like like Buddhist temples where you go there and, and you 
you meditate on your sort of like hopes and dreams and yeah. and you leave a little written wish on this uh wherever on the temple. I'm I'm not sure what they use. It could be a tree, it could be like a like a bell that they ring. But that's it's interesting because I feel like a lot of what Yoko ends up doing sort of draws from these like Zen Buddhist principles. Definitely. Yeah. Those are just a few um, few of her really important work. Shifting into more of Yoko Ono in the contemporary world. I mentioned this before, but there is this t-shirt that Zara made that was a um, Yoko Ono quote. And it was, it was a, I think it was a couple of years ago, and it was, like, super expensive because it's Zara. But, um, and I want it so bad, but I can only find knockoffs, but right. I'm still probably going to buy it anyways. It's literally a shirt. <laughs> t-shirt. And yeah, it's a t-shirt. It, it's a white t-shirt. Um, and in, like, little tiny letters, like, right in the center, it says, um, this Yoko Ono quote, it says, art is a way of survival, Yoko Ono. Which is, like, one of my favorite quotes. I think it's so perfect and... Something I want to wear around on my body all the time. <laughs> um. As we watch the suburban garden gnome carefully, carefully without disturbing it, we notice that it moves like not at all. It's inanimate and utterly without brain function. But despite that, when a garden gnome hears about how Geico not only saves people money, but also gives them access to licensed agents 24-7 online and over the phone, it's clear to them you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. But on second thoughts, maybe don't watch Garden Gnomes too carefully. People might talk. She also has uh, her her Twitter. Her Twitter is fire. Her Twitter is so great. Her uh, Twitter handle is at Yoko Ono. If you follow us on Twitter, I retweet her all the time. Um, they're, they're just like, she just like tweets out these really inspirational, wonderful tweets, like fairly regularly. Um, I pulled a couple of them out. Um, let's see, one of them, you don't have to take care of other people's feelings. Just know your feelings, though that too is not easy. Mm. And it's just like, <laughs> how, how so wise. Um, so true. So true, yeah. So wise, so true. Um, And then another one, become an oasis, rejuvenate and revitalize, heal the world. I would love to be an oasis. Right? You are an oasis. Stop it. You're my oasis. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like the band? No. Anyway, here's Wonderwall. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Don't look back in anger. <laughs> I what you said. Oh my god. <laughs> um. Anyway. <laughs> um. Ginny, do you want to talk about her most recent work? Yeah. Yeah. So Yoko Ono still very active, and um. After the shootings in Dallas, obviously, uh, tensions have been high in the United States. Um, And the Dallas Museum of Art, the uh, senior curator of contemporary art, asked Yoko Ono if she would make some kind of piece to kind of promote this sense of um, peace and hope after um, everything that happened in Dallas a few weeks back. And so she agreed, and what she made is kind of this large banner. It's a white backdrop and black text, and it says, Imagine Peace Forever, and says it on the opposite end in Spanish. 
So uh, this comes from John Lennon's song, Imagine, and then she just adds on Imagine Peace Forever. And this is her most recent work um, as of a few weeks ago. And if you are in Dallas, you should check it out because it looks pretty incredible. And yeah. That's the most recent up Yoko update. Yeah. So I think that kind of uh, wraps things up on our episode about the great Yoko Ono. We're gonna we're gonna end our episode with some listener mail. All right, what do we got, Jenny? Okay. So this comes this comes from Claire. Art history babes. I only stumbled upon the podcast a couple of days ago, but I am now a huge fan. I just graduated with a double major in art history and Italian, and I'm headed to grad school this far. I'm sorry, I'm mispronouncing everything tonight. This fall. Um, Your podcast encompasses some of my favorite things about art history. You make it interesting, not stuffy, relatable, and relevant. You often use a feminist lens, and you guys also just seem like a ton of fun. Thank you. Thanks, Claire. It's so nice. Oh, Claire, you know what? We are a ton of fun. So <laughs> I would love to hang out one day. Yeah, come come, have fun with us whenever you want. Hit yeah. us up. We'd love to have you on our show. Come to Cali, baby. <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> and um, Claire wraps up by saying that if we have any advice on the first year of grad school... Um, even if it's just a couple of tips, she would love to hear. And keep up the good work. You guys are so awesome. Best of luck, Claire. Claire, that you're so, so awesome. Yeah, so, so, so awesome. So, grad school advice. Um, I would say the best advice that I could give you would be to to really make sure you're taking care of yourself, obviously. Um, make sure... I would suggest just making sure that you you find a good support group, whether it's in your program or outside of your program. Just try and find people that, you know, those people that you can go get drinks with, you can let off steam with, you can, you just have as your support system, you know, when things get tough. Um, the four of us got super lucky in finding each other, like yeah. right off the bat, um, two weeks in and we were just like, wow, we are going to be best friends. Um, <laughs> yeah. I remember Corey and I made eye contact <laughs> at the orientation. This sounds romantic. It, it, it kind of was. Um, <laughs> and I just saw her and I was like, you, we're going to be friends. And then, and then we met everybody else and, and everyone was just so cool. And, and that's amazing. I think that we got crazy lucky. We did, because I know, I hear a lot of stories, I think we all hear a lot of stories about um, how isolating grad school can be for a lot of people. And so I think it's important to be um, proactive in some way and and make sure you're not isolating yourself. Um, Like I said, it might be in your program, it might be outside of your program. Just find that support system that's going to, like, be there for you. And, yeah, and I would also suggest not... Don't sweat the small stuff. Really, don't sweat the big stuff either. Like, when things get really tough, like, you can do it. It's going to be fine. I promise it's going to be fine. Yeah, that's that's kind of our mantra at the end of the quarter. <laughs> Seriously. Like, I don't know how I'm going to get all of this done. And it's like, I'm like on page 
five of a 25 page paper and I just don't know how it's gonna get done and we're like you know You'll get it done and I'm though, usually crying won't. and I'm, everything's falling apart and and you know Ginny and Natalie and Corey are like girl it's gonna get done you're gonna do it and and we tell that to each other and all the gets, time and it gets done yeah. it all gets done we always finish and it's always really good yeah and, and everything like, is wow. fine yeah yeah, yeah. Um, geez. Okay. Let me, let me think. Oh, big piece of advice. Um, don't get wrapped up in getting competitive. Yeah. That is so stupid. It's just, it is not worth it. Yeah. There's no real reason to no, ever it serves do no that. Purpose. It serves no purpose. You're honestly, if you start to get competitive with someone, let's say that somebody is doing Make exactly it yourself. what you're doing, right? <laughs> and you're like, what the hell? You know? <laughs> Make it, like, a, a collaborative effort. Like, be friends, you know? Mm. Share resources. And I know that this really goes against, like, what we're taught. I think that yeah. in, like, a capitalist society, we're kind of taught to, like... Fucking capitalism. Fend for ourselves. God and, damn it. You know, and, 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 and honestly, I had a conversation with one of our professors who said, like, you know, it's really amazing to see how great all of you get along because that's not what it was like when I was in grad school. Yeah. And I think that that's really sad and I really hope that your experience is not that way. Don't get caught up in being competitive. You just work on your shit and be a friend. And when you don't get caught up in being competitive, sometimes you do really cool things like create a podcast with yeah. your cohort. So <laughs> it's pretty exciting. Yeah. And what else? Oh, you got anything, Jen? Yeah. You know, just do your best and don't sweat the rest. Um, yeah. No, just just honestly do what you can do and maintain your health both like physical and mental and make sure that you make time for having fun and doing things that are kind of removed from the world of academia because I think it's good to kind of maintain that balance and um, basically just do what you got to do get that degree and like move on to the next thing pretty much yeah make a lot of important contacts you know, yeah. meet yeah. your professors, pick their brains. That's what they're there for, honestly. Also, yeah. just going in, I mean, I don't know, like, where you're going to school, but going into an art history program, uh, one thing that's been really cool for us is we clicked with the art MFAs. So, like, try and get in there. Oh, and my God, they're so fun. <laughs> just try and get in there and meet the artists that are, like, at your school. Like, that's a really just cool connection to make. Not only are they great, interesting people, but we get to, like, bounce ideas off of each other. It's just, like, totally. a great And they know how to party. <laughs> they think we're bookish nerds. <laughs> Little did they know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so you know what, Claire, you're going to learn about so much of this shit when you get to grad school and the best thing you can do is just show up there with an open mind and just do your best and don't act weird and get competitive <laughs> and just make a lot of friends and, yeah. and you know it's it's gonna be great and yeah. congratulations yes. for getting into grad school that's amazing and it's a huge accomplishment and yeah. you should feel be very proud. proud and you should feel very excited yeah definitely. you're gonna do great um so yeah thanks claire you're awesome 
Uh, thank you all for listening so much. Wait, You're can all I, awesome. Can I? Can I? Can I say something? Can I say something? <laughs> sure. You know, the only reason why I'm saying this is because I've noticed that there were some haters. There were there were some haters on the Facebook page, and I oh, just God. I know. No, no, I'm not going to say anything rude. No, I'm not going to say anything rude. I promise. I just want to say that I, um, you know, bringing it back to the main lady of the night, which is our awesome, wonderful babe, Yoko Ono, I noticed some comments on the Facebook, and there were some people who um, had some negative things to say about Yoko and had some negative things to say about her art and her and her music, and, you know, we're all entitled to our opinions. I think it would be wonderful to leave things off on this note. We are not here to change your mind okay so if you have already made up your mind about an artist if you've already made up your mind about yoko ono then you know okay um congratulations (laughs) and we are not gonna try to persuade you to feel differently and i i felt like i wanted to say something about this because i noticed the comments and i i didn't respond because you know what am i going to say if you already think that she is this or that, then that's up to you. Honestly, I think that's, like, um, that is an important thing to bring up. I would say, like, we encourage you to disagree with us, but just just do it in, like, a in a way that facilitates conversation. Like, if if there's something about um, this episode that you found particularly interesting or compelling or that you maybe disagree with, write us an email. A not rude email, of course. Write us an email and be like, hey, I think this about this, and we would love to keep yeah. the conversation going. That's and, yeah. totally doable. Say, like, here's why, and and this is why I think this way, and, and I think that we could have a meaningful conversation, but... Yeah, so if you have... Um, At the end of the day, we're just some gals talking about our yeah. hanging out. Exactly. So, I mean, we we just... I think the entire goal of this podcast is to open up conversation about um, taboo topics or interesting topics. So, yeah, if you do have any thoughts or questions, email us at arthistorybabes at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at Art History Babes. You can find us on Instagram at Art History Babes Podcast. Check out our website, arthistorybabes.com. It's got everything on it. But thank you so much for listening. You all are so great and so awesome, and we're so excited to have you listening to us talk about art. Thanks, and we'll... Uh, Uh, See you next week. Have a good time. From Cabernet to Montmartre, they're here to slay the art history babes. Geico presents, oh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, While you're there, could you also turn off the oven? And all of the burners. (laughs) My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. (laughs) The Geico Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit Geico.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance.